Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus, Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David... A saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. We live in a world that is longing for peace. Whether that's uh, on a high level, we see division and hostility in places like the war in Ukraine and we long for peace. Or closer to home, we see it in places where there's political polarisation and and vitriol and people fighting against each other. Or or even closer to home than that, we we see conflict uh, in our families and in our personal relationships. Peace is something that all people long for, but how do we get it? What's the answer to it? In our modern era, uh, many people might be tempted to think that the answer is technology. After all, we live in an age of progress. Uh, But wonderful as technology is, it hasn't given us peace. Technology is amazing and it's given us awesome advances in medicine, yes, to help us uh, help each other, uh, but it's also given us advances in firepower and drone technology that humans use to kill each other all the more efficiently. Technology is awesome but it hasn't given us peace. Well, if that's what we might be tempted to think in the modern world, in more ancient times, many people thought the answer to peace was not technology, but power, human strength and might. 
In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we get introduced to a guy named Caesar Augustus. Uh, have a look in your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, when Luke mentions uh, Caesar Augustus, it's easy for us to glaze over and not realize the significance of who this guy was. But when Luke first wrote his gospel to his original recipients, they knew exactly how significant he was. One of the many things that Caesar Augustus was known for is that he was the one who brought peace to the Roman world. Caesar Augustus brought peace, what was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, kicking off the golden era of the Roman Empire. Before him was a very unstable period of civil wars with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and so on. But Caesar Augustus, or Octavian as he was previously known, he was victorious, he won and he restored peace, becoming the emperor of the united Roman Empire in 27 BC. There's an inscription that was discovered uh, that's dated to about 9 BC, which is not too long before the birth of Jesus. And part of that inscription reads, The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. All the cities unanimously adopt the, the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who, being sent to us and our descendants as Saviour, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Now, one of the things that you may have noticed about this inscription is that Caesar Augustus is described not just as, you know, a really nice guy or a good bloke, but as divine, a man who had become God, God manifest. And that's not just how others saw him, that's what he claimed for himself. Even that name Augustus, that's what it means. Uh, He was originally Octavian or, or Gaius Octavius. But when he consolidated power in 27 BC, he made the Senate confer on him the title of Augustus. And in Latin, Augustus means revered or majestic. It was the word that was used to refer to Roman deities, to Roman gods, like Jupiter and Mars. They were described as venerable, revered, august. And he took that title on for himself. It's quite audacious, isn't it? Caesar Augustus was a proud man, a powerful man, who elevated himself even to the point of claiming to be God. Notice as well, the inscription says uh, that he was called Saviour. In other letters, we, we even see that his birth was later called Gospel. It was called Good News. And why did they see him as divine, as Saviour, as bringer of good news? Because he brought peace. He was seen as saviour because, as it puts it here, he's put an end to war and has set all things in order. Caesar Augustus, the man who brought about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So perhaps that is the answer 
to world peace. Human strength and military might. Maybe we just need, in the 21st century, a strong man like Caesar Augustus to bring us peace. But there are some real big problems with that. Uh, For one, even though this was called the the Pax Romana, the so-called Golden Age, uh, if you look at it a little bit more closely, the reality was it wasn't such a wonderful peace. For the Romans, peace didn't mean everyone's in harmony and getting along with each other. It means you've crushed your enemies to the point that they're no longer able to offer any resistance. It was a peace for the Roman elite, living in elegance, who lived very peacefully, while everyone else lived under the oppression of the Roman legions and and crippling taxation. It was peace for the strong, but oppression for the weak. In fact, that's the whole reason for the census in Luke 2, verses 1 to 3. It was a census for the purposes of taxation, so that they could squeeze even more out of their peaceful, impoverished subjects. People like Joseph and Mary. And the Roman peace was not only oppressive, but it was also fragile and temporary. It didn't last. So no, human might and strength are no good solution for our longing for peace. So what is? Well, in Luke chapter 2, God is promising a far better solution to the peace that we are all looking for. A solution that gives real peace, not just crushing our enemies. A peace that is for the weak, not just the strong. And a peace that is lasting. So let's have a look at how this peace unfolds what God's solution is. We've seen verses 1 to 3 in the census, so let's pick up and read from verse 4. Have a look in your Bibles with me. Luke 2 verse 4, it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So here we're introduced to two people who are obeying the Roman decree, Mary and Joseph. We know from history that Roman censuses sometimes adapted to local customs, uh, and in this case, uh, adapting to the Israelite customs where uh, your, your tribal lineage and ancestry and connection to land was very important, that meant that for this Roman census, Joseph and Mary had to make the journey down from Nazareth in the north of Israel down to Bethlehem, the town of David, a journey that would have taken them about three days on foot. Mary's heavily pregnant, and not long after they arrive in Bethlehem, she gives birth. But because there's no guest room available, she puts her baby in a manger. Now, it's hard for us to picture this properly because our imaginations have been so skewed by uh, sentimental Christmas cards. You know, immaculately clean, uh, soft lighting, gentle smiles, uh, even halos. I mean, you've got to love that. I'm sure that's historically accurate. Now, of of course, we don't know exactly what things did look like. We, We can't go back and take a picture, but we can be very confident that it looks nothing like this. Uh, If you've ever seen a manger, uh, the word manger, all it means is literally it's an animal feeding trough. If you've ever seen an animal feeding trough, you'll know that all the straw would not be immaculately clean and puffy and and pillow-like. 
like it is there. If you've ever been in a delivery room while a child was born, you'll know it isn't, isn't serene like this and also perfectly clean. No, when Jesus was born, there was screaming and wailing. There was blood and mess. And there were certainly no halos. So I know those pictures are very dark. Um, they're a bit hard to see. Those are screenshots from the TV show The Chosen. I don't know if you've heard about it, but um, it's not perfect. But it gets a lot of things right. And I think it does a lot of things very well. And does a very good job at depicting much more accurate vision of what life would have been like back then for Middle Eastern Jews who are poor, impoverished, dirty. The birth of Jesus was not sentimental. It's far from anything you'd see on a Christmas card or even a modern clean delivery ward or even the august birthing chamber of the Roman elite. It was dirty and unimpressive. A poor child born to a pregnant teenager and a small village carpenter placed in an animal feeding trough. In the world's eyes, they were nobodies. It was nothing. They were completely insignificant. And yet, as we saw two weeks ago in Luke chapter 1, this child born to Mary was the Son of God. God the Creator. Stepping into our human experience, not in a prince's palace, but in a dirty stable. What a contrast Caesar Augustus, a man who elevated himself as a God compared to the true God who humbled himself, lowering himself to become a man. Man in pride trying to elevate himself versus God in humility, lowering himself to become a human just like us. And again, we have to fight to to strip away the sentimentality He was a real messy baby, a real child, a greasy teenager with all the messiness that all of those things involved. Jesus did not float around 30 centimeters off the ground with a halo. He shared our humanity in all its messiness. I love the way Christian rapper Shai Lin puts it in his song, Hypostatic Union. By faith we believe this amazing Jesus who made Uranus and Venus became a fetus. It's such a secret that few, if anybody, knew it. Months later, he's covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the Gospels, praise of apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits and nostrils. Who is this Jesus? God clothed in human weakness, super sweetness and peace for true believers. See, the one who never tires, knocked out sleeping. See the source of eternal joy, weeping. Which one can explain how the sun, abundant with fame, who made thunder and rain, now has hunger pains? Whereas we, in our pride, want to elevate ourselves, God, in his humility, lowers himself and steps into our human experience in the lowest of places. And why did he do it? He did it to save us and give us peace. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verse 8 and following. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. We've seen the events of his birth, but now uh, the significance gets unpacked. Verse 8. 
And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now here we see the angels announcing the significance of Jesus' birth. And again, it's noteworthy that they're announcing it not to the political or religious elite, not to the wealthy or important in the eyes of the world, but to lowly shepherds. God steps in at the lowest places. And they say that Jesus' birth is good news that will cause great joy for all the people. What makes it good? It's good news because the baby that is born is Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. It's good news because Jesus came to save us and give us peace. There's one thread that runs throughout this passage that helps us see that, and that thread is Bethlehem, the town of David. Did you notice there in verse 11, the angel doesn't just say that the Savior is born, but specifically draws attention to the fact that he's born in the town of David, that is Bethlehem. And did you notice back in verse 4 that Luke drew our attention to the same thing, that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, the town of David. Now, why is that significant? Why is our attention being drawn to this fact? Uh, Well, if you were here two weeks ago, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, we saw that Luke, as a careful historian, is writing an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. If you weren't there a couple of weeks ago, I recommend checking it out. Um, just as of this week, the Uni Church sermon podcasts are now on Spotify. So if you search up Uni Church sermons, you should be able to find it pretty easily. And there we saw that when Luke says the things that have been fulfilled among us, he's saying that the events of Jesus' life fulfill the Old Testament. And one of the many places where we see that to be true is in the case of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah lived 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And in Micah chapter 5, he prophesied this. Micah chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's the ancient name for Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, And the rest of his brothers returned to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Bethlehem and Judah are small and unimpressive. And yet God promises that out of them a ruler will come. And this ruler, his origins are from of old, from of ancient times, which at the time would have been perplexing until people later saw, as God revealed, that this ruler was none other than his own son. And what will happen when this ruler, this shepherd, takes the throne? It says the people will live securely and he will be our peace. 
So do you see why Luke is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? This is a big deal. This is fulfilling a prophecy made 700 years earlier. What would have seemed like an accident of history, Joseph having to trek with his heavily pregnant wife to obey the Roman decree, would have seemed like an accident of history was God orchestrating things according to his plan. If that census had taken place even a week later, Jesus wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem. But even down to the minute details, Caesar Augustus thought that he wasn't in control. But it was really God who was fulfilling his promises to his people to give them a saviour and to bring them peace. And this promise of peace is picked up and reaffirmed in Luke 2. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke chapter 2 from verse 13. It says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. This is the answer. This is the promise to the peace our world is longing for. Not human strength or might, not humans trying to elevate themselves, but instead God lowering himself to give us Jesus. That's the answer. That's the solution. He will be our peace. But it's worth asking, how does this actually work? I mean, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, and yet in that time we've still had conflict, we've had world wars, we still have conflict in our families and relationships. So if that was 2,000 years ago, where's this promised peace? If God is really all-powerful, why didn't he sweep in 2,000 years ago, destroy the conflict and the chaos in this world at the source, and bring about true and lasting peace once and for all? Surely that's what we'd all want, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Because there's a problem with that scenario. God sweeping in and destroying conflict and chaos and evil at the source? The problem is that the source of conflict is not out there to be destroyed. It's in us. It's in our hearts. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian historian who lived through two world wars and after that suffered under the oppressive regime of the USSR. He spent eight years imprisoned in the horrific gulag camps and has seen firsthand more evil than you or I could imagine. But one of the striking things about the atrocities of these times is that for the most part, they weren't committed by heartless monsters, but by ordinary people like you and me just under very different circumstances. One of the things Solzhenitsyn came to realise is that the source of all this conflict and evil he saw is not out there, but within each human heart. That evil is something we're all capable of. He writes in uh, the Gulag Archipelago, I've come to realise that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either but right through every human heart. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? 
You see, that's the problem. If God simply came and destroyed every obstacle piece, obstacle to peace, he'd have to wipe us out too, wouldn't he? I mean, he'd have to wipe me out. Maybe you're a much better person than me. But I know my heart. I know that despite my intentions, there are also selfish motives in my heart that bring about conflict in my relationships. The line between good and evil runs right through my heart. So we've got a bit of a problem, don't we? We want peace, and if that's what God's offering, we'll happily take him up on it. But how can that happen without us being wiped out in the process? Well, Jesus is God's solution. Jesus was born as one of us, so that he could grow up and die on a cross as one of us. To take the punishment we deserve for all the ways that we contribute to conflict and all the ways that we've rejected the God of peace. Jesus came to solve the problem at the source so that through him we could have peace with God now and to pave the way so that one day when Jesus returns again, he can bring about true, worldwide, cosmic peace without having to wipe us out in the process. So when the angels declared peace on earth, they were being very serious. But the peace they were announcing was not world peace, not yet anyway. Peace with God, now, through Jesus' first coming, forgiveness, reconciliation, being brought into his family. Peace with God now, world peace later, when Jesus comes again. Peace on the vertical plane now. Perfect cosmic peace on the horizontal plane later. But also that even now in Christ, we can experience a peace, even in the hardest circumstances, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that is so much better than what the world offers. And that is deeply good news. But what does it look like for us to respond to this good news? How should we respond? Well, in the last part of our passage, verses 15 to 21, we see actually a whole bunch of ways that people respond to the good news of Jesus' birth. Verses 15 to 16, the shepherds go and see for themselves. You know, they believe the angel's message, but it's not a blind faith. They want to go and see tangibly in front of them. They go and see for themselves. Verse 17, they spread the word about Jesus. Verse 18, people respond with amazement about this news, these prophecies fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Verse 19, Mary treasures up all these things and ponders them in her heart. Verse 20, the the shepherds respond by glorifying and praising God. Verse 21, Mary and Joseph respond by obeying. They give their child the name the angel had told them to. So if you go through it all, you can see at least seven responses here in these verses. Obeying, going to see for ourselves, spreading the word, glorifying and praising God. So many different responses. But the key thing to see here is that this isn't them obeying a list of seven commands that had been given. But rather is the natural overflow of people who have been gripped by the fact 
that the news about Jesus is good. The news that Jesus is Saviour and Lord and bringer of peace, they've seen that that, change, that that news is both good and life-changing. And so that's the key thing for us here tonight. You know, it wouldn't make any sense for me to come up here and say, here are the seven things that you must do in response or else. No, because this passage isn't about a list of seven rules. It's about people who are responding out of the overflow of hearts that have been gripped by the goodness of the gospel and Jesus' birth. And so the key question is, do you see the birth of Jesus as good news? Not just do you believe it to be true, not just do you intellectually assent to it, but do you see it as good? This is key. The angels announce that a saviour has been born to us, but we will only see that news as good if we see our need for a saviour. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which pictures what things could be like after the final judgment, once there's been that great separation, that great divorce between heaven and hell, between those who know God and love Him and enjoy Him for eternity on the one hand, and on the other, those who reject God and are totally separated from His goodness. Now, he's very upfront that this is a work of fiction. He's not saying this is actually what it's like, but it helps to illustrate very real truths. And so he writes about a group of people who take a bus ride from hell to the gates of heaven. And as, the, as the, this, uh, this bus ride comes up and they come up there, there's, there's a conversation between different people. And at one point, there's a conversation between two men who see each other. One's been in hell and the other in heaven, but they recognize each other from their lives back on earth. The guy who in hell recognizes the guy in heaven as a former employee of his who'd actually been convicted of murder and put in jail. And so when he sees this guy up now in heaven, he is not happy about it. So the one from hell who C.S. Lewis describes as a ghost because he's a shadow of his former self. The ghost is confused about why he's in hell and the other man's in heaven. Here's the conversation. Let me read it out for you. He says, what I'd like to understand is why you're here, you, a bloody murderer, while I've been walking in the streets down there and living in a pigsty all these years. The other, the other man says, oh, it's, it's a little uh, hard to understand at first, but it'll make sense, sure enough. Till then, there's no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it, the ghost replies. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? You, a bloody murderer here? How can you not be ashamed of yourself? And the man in heaven says, well, I'm not ashamed of myself, not, not as you mean. I, I, don't, I don't look at myself. I don't even think about myself. I've given up myself a long time ago. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me. That's where everything began when I realized I needed help. Well, personally, said the big ghost, with an emphasis that contradicted the ordinary emphasis of the word personally, Personally, I thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. I have gone straight all my life. Didn't say I was a religious man. Didn't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I'd done my best all my life, see? Done my best by everything. That's the sort of chap I was. 
Never asked for anything that wasn't my right. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort of chap I was and I don't care who knows it. I've always done my best. I've never done anything wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. The man in heaven replied, Then ask. Ask for the bleeding charity. And it will be given to you. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought or earned. The man in heaven urged him to ask for God's mercy, but he refused. Tell them I'm not coming, see? I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? Not to go sniveling along on charity. And so he rejected it and went back to hell. Now, of course, C.S. Lewis is very upfront about the fact that this is fiction. But it illustrates a very real truth, doesn't it? It is a humbling thing to admit our need for help. Our need for charity. Our need for mercy. It's a humbling thing to admit our need for, our sa- for a saviour. In our human pride, we want to elevate ourselves. We want to say, I'm fine. I've got it. I can do it myself. That's true in a secular world where a lot of people want to say, oh yeah, I'm not such a bad person. I can do it myself. I'll be fine. And that's true in so many different religions where where people set up all these rules and this system of works righteousness. It's all about human pride elevating themselves because it's so counterintuitive to let go of our human pride and acknowledge that we have nothing to offer. That Jesus alone is our only hope in life and death. But in Jesus, God is offering us peace to anyone who is willing to admit that, to admit their need, to come to him. We live in a world that is longing for peace. But only those who humble themselves and look to Jesus will find it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of peace. We praise you as a God who fulfills your promises, sending us a saviour in Jesus, in fulfilment of your plan announced centuries earlier. Father, uh, we confess that, that, the, that, that we too contribute to the conflict uh, in this world and in our lives. Father, we confess that the dividing line between good and evil passes between our hearts too. And so we thank you that you've sent Jesus to solve our problem at the source, to give us peace with you now and world peace when Jesus comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Father, as we long for that day, as we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and make all things right, Father, help us in the meantime to trust in Jesus, whether that be for the first time here tonight or whether that be to hold on and keep looking to Jesus rather than to ourselves. Father, by your Spirit, please be at work in our hearts. 
to take away our blindness to our own sin. Father, help us to see our need for you. And through that, help us to see just how precious and good is the good news about Jesus, our Savior. Father, shape our hearts to be, to be so gripped by the beauty of the gospel that we can't help but respond in obedience, in spreading the word, in, in longing to know you better and see more for ourselves, in longing to live our lives glorifying and praising you for all that you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.